turn to Matthew 4 where we left off, and I have some things to finish from last time. And so I brought a few extra notes from last time for those who may not have been here, and so I assume you guys got those if you needed them, and then I just have one sheet for today. God is good. Praise God. Remember, God is doing a new thing. It's very important that we get a hold of that. It was really something I felt burdened for as we were praying earlier, but it's you know it's general, generally on our hearts, and I'm sure the Spirit's saying that during this season that God's doing a new thing. You know, sometimes uh, we put restrictions on what God can do. I know that doesn't sound like good theology, but in, in, in some real sense, God has limited himself to his people. He is the incarnate God. And, of course, God's not literally, ultimately limited to his people, but he is faithful to his plan, which is to incarnate himself in his son Jesus and then to have his spirit abiding in his people. And when we are at our best, we're called the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the important thing, because the potential is is there in the church to be the fullness of him who fills everything. Then he's going to stick to that plan. And he's doing something new to maximize our ability to contain and express the new wine that he's pouring out. See, it's like, like I've said from the beginning, it's not an issue of how are we going to do church. It's really first an issue of Jesus Christ and how great he is and his ways and the way he operates through people. And we just want to get lined up in that. So I'm going to continue talking about that today. We're going to keep talking about the kingdom today. And we have my faithful board here. We may just, we may just use this. So don't be alarmed by it. <laughs> Praise God. Father, thank you so much for the privilege to be together. We thank you for your awesome love and your presence that surrounds us right now and swirls among us and oversees us with your great compassion and your wisdom, Lord. We just come to you as a refuge, and we come to you as your children before your throne and as your servants before our King. And we just bow our knees, our hearts, and we bless your holy name. We recognize you as God over all and Jesus Christ as Lord. Who is like our God who would become like one of us and would go to the depths for us on our behalf, dying the death we did not deserve and going to the deeps of our suffering and of the lowly places of this earth only to be raised again in power. You are awesome, Jesus Christ, and we worship you. And Father, we pray for your mercy tonight. We ask you for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to be given out in abundance right now. And we ask that by faith in Jesus' name. We pray that you will strengthen and heal your people not just those that are here, and not just through any ministry we may represent, but we're asking for a move of your spirit in this city. We pray that the bones would hear the word of the Lord and would come back together according to the form that God has designed for them, and that you'd recreate them even in death, and then the breath of life would come on them again. Awaken us to this kind of work, and do this work, we pray, our God in this city, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 4, let's read this passage again. Matthew 4:18 and following. This passage 
contains three points of the kingdom that I'm focusing on in order to teach and proclaim the kingdom in an attempt to download some DNA before we break off into our next phase in the weeks to come. By the way, let me say this. Uh, this, and, and, uh, this is being recorded, right, Mike? So we're doing that. I'm very thankful. Mike Dow did a great job of recording this last time. Uh, there was a few glitches with the system, but not with Mike. And so he's got it on iTunes and everything and, and on SermonNet. And that's a good deal because, you know, some of these things I really want the folks that will be at least if they're considering seriously coming with us, I want them to hear it. So, um, yeah, so along those lines, let me just remind you that whatever we do for classes, whether it's this orientation or anything in the future, which is our intention, if, if it's God's will, that we're always having some kind of school with folks that are part of our group and even from the outside, just training the saints constantly, just making something available as a download so that we're living the life out in our uh, family environment of the smaller groups and then those are launching pads for ministry into the city. Amen. If you do not feel called to join us in particular in our sphere of ministry, as the Lord enables this school to continue, this is available to anyone who wants to. That's why we're doing it, not just for the folks that feel joined with us, but for whomever. Uh, might have the time to do that and might want to participate in that kind of equipping. So feel that freedom. You have absolutely no obligation. We're just doing this. It's part of our vision. And yet at the same time, some of you are probably here or you're listening by the recording because you are seriously considering joining what we're doing. So if, if that applies to you, I really encourage you to be praying and to be sensitive to the spirit as to what the next steps are going to be. You know, because part of our vision is going to be meeting in smaller units as churches. Now, I don't want to go about that plastically, but when you're getting a bunch of people together and to start with, we have to think along the lines of then breaking up, you know, into these smaller groups when the time comes. So it's really, really important that you're praying and you're asking the Lord, first of all, you know, do you do you want me here? Are you calling me to, to be a part of what's going on? So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, Lord, join my heart with the right people. Because this is about relationships. It's all about community with God and with one another. Church is not beyond that. Church is family, period. That's what it is. And so because we're starting in a setting like this, but it's not services, the forum is so that not only we could get a download, but so that we can start to connect with one another and pray to the Lord about who are you connecting me with. And in order to avoid it being too raw in the way we're just trying to relate to one another, take this time not only to be praying, but to take some initiative with some other folks as you begin to connect as the Lord leads or whatever, that you could start to connect with one another. Because listen, God's doing a new thing. And what we're doing is not a church pastored by me. I'm not doing that. And one of the reasons why we're having these sessions is so that you can hear me say that in one manner or another. It's not because I'm against that format. It's because God's not called me or those that are who are joined to our sphere of ministry and authority. That's simply not what we're called to do. I'm going to provide a, a kind of leadership. And I, I, God, give me grace. I feel it will be good leadership in the role I'm called to give. But I'm not the pastor of a church that if you're excited about coming to hear my preaching, then you should seriously consider joining. 
that's just not what God is calling us to in this hour. Now, if you, if you do enjoy my teaching or anyone else's, I mean, I want to provide that, but that's not definitive as to what the church is. The church is you. And that's part of what my leadership role was to remind you and help you with that so that it takes shape in our lives and doesn't default into the conference format that meets once a week. And by the way, I have no problem with conference-type meetings even once a week. I want to do that. I think there's a component there that's awesome and beneficial. But if it becomes definitive, we miss the whole point, and I feel like we limit God. It's really time for the saints to just start being the saints. Our, our, our key concept here, as I've said before, is the kingdom. We're not first concerned with doing church. We're first concerned with the kingdom. Oh, man, how many times did I leave this room to go get an eraser and, and got sidetracked every time? Can someone get me something to erase this thing? Thanks, Dan. There might be something that the kids are using on their whiteboard, uh, an eraser. It's all about the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom and everything else is added unto you. Well, you want to have a real church, then, then focus not on church, but on the kingdom and its king. Kingdom has two expressions as I understand scripture. One, it's people being a family. God's government is completely family-oriented. When we're baptized in water, we're baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's family. Even God himself as Trinity is family. Even the Spirit is a member of the family. Though the Spirit of God has a name that seems less personal. If, 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 you, if you're married and, and you have kids in the house and your wife, let's say, goes on a trip to California, you, you find out that you, you are missing in one sense the spirit of your family. You know, there's the father and the mother and the children. I'm not saying the spirit is the mother. I'm not even saying that the, the spirit is, a, you know, a, a feminine person. Though the, it, there does seem to be some loose parallel between the image of humankind with the father and the mother and the child or the son, the firstborn. So in any case, when we're baptized into the father, the son and the Holy Spirit, Jesus taught us to do that, not so we knew what to say when we dunked people in water, but because disciples of the king, which in Matthew's gospel, from which the Great Commission comes, right? Matthew's gospel is all about the kingdom, like Mark and Luke with it. And yet, how does he close the entire gospel? When you baptize them, you baptize them into the divine family. To be a part of the kingdom is to be in the family of God. Because it's the Father who's the great God, Emperor and the Lord Jesus is the king, but who is he? He's the son, like David was a son of God. He was the little one of the family, etc. And the other uh, expression of the kingdom is, how do we say, transformation. Or another way of putting it is evangelism. It's power ministry going out through the natural outflow of life from the family of God. So the kingdom, see, nowhere in here did I write church. Church is a fine word, but we're we're just breaking the mold a little bit so we understand what we're talking about. The kingdom of heaven does not have to look like an organized institutional church. It's the family of God and its constant extension of life into the community of darkness around us. That is the kingdom. So this is what we're going for. This is our vision. So what are you going to do? What do we do after? Well, I'm not totally sure every detail. But I I believe that if God is with us and leading us, he will show us what to do. Our vision is important, but our vision is not our light. As I've said, the Lord is our light.
Our eyes may be on him, even though we don't know exactly what he's doing. There is that element of mystery. Amen. So God's doing a new thing, even though this is ancient. It's as old as the hills. It's as old as scripture. And we're not the ones coming up with it. There have been people for decades who believe like this. God's just making it more spread out. And he's got people more prepared to receive something so simple and yet so powerful. But a lot of it depends on us. That is, a lot of it depends on you. It's not on the church staff, which we don't even have. And we might, I mean, we might have people that help us administrate or pay full-time ministers. That's perfectly biblical. But that doesn't make them the hierarchy around which everything revolves. It's, it's around you. I mean, there's, we want to provide as much as we can. We want to provide tools and ideas and everything possible to facilitate it. But the point is the, to equip us so that we be the thing and then do the thing. Forgive my slamming the table. I'm not upset. It just was a... Uh, uh, just a, a little bit of a, a depth perception issue. I thought it was closer. <laughs> just kidding. Okay. So Matthew 4:18 and following. Whoa! I don't know. Just chat for 20 minutes as if I don't have at least an hour and 15 worth to talk about tonight. Help us. 4:18. Okay. As Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Did I skip a part? Yeah, I started earlier last week, didn't I? Earlier in the text, but that's okay. We already covered that point. Verse 17, from that time Jesus began to say, uh, he began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we hammered that last time. So now he's calling followers in verse 20. They left their nets and followed him immediately. He went on from there, saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother. They were in the boat with Zebedee, their father. They were mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Of course, the leaving of the father is significant. The way family units clung together and the the father's trade was passed on. And, of course, the value of family at all and the ancient uh, Near East and, of, of course, Israel itself. That's significant that Matthew would tell us that. So that there's a new family being hinted at and being formulated. So now we're in full stride in verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Just reading that last week got an amen from somewhere over here to my right. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. That'll work. Thank you very much for that. So there in in that passage from 17 to 25, we see like a capsule of the kingdom of God. And we're going to distill from that the three points that make up the points I'm making of what the kingdom is and what our own value system is and is going to be. The first point is coming out of this preaching the kingdom. We talked about the fact that Jesus was issuing the judgments of God. But these judgments were not negative necessarily. They certainly were not always punishments. They were the decrees of the king, which we took, took you through the Old Testament. 
about how the, the judges and the, the kings of the Old Testament, uh, their role was to, to execute God's justice and righteousness on the earth. And the key to that was discerning the will of God by the Spirit and the Word. And that now that we've entered the kingdom, the kingdom is all about life in the Spirit and living according to the Spirit. When we live according to the Spirit, we're issuing the judgments, the decrees, the will of God on the earth supernaturally and organically. That's component to the kingdom. It's the Spirit. This kingdom is supernatural. The Messiah was anointed with the Spirit, wisdom, counsel, strength, etc. So we're people of the Spirit. Amen? Now, we've already talked about it. I'm not going to go over it again, but you can listen to the recording. Jesus said that uh, the, the wind blows wherever it wants, and you hear the sound of it. And so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. And you don't know whether the wind is coming or going. And so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. They're living on a whole different plane than the people of this life. Right? This world is predicated on going forward by dominating. It's, it's what one scholar calls it, power over. But the way of the Spirit, which is more powerful and carries more authority... Always goes low first. The same scholar would call it power under. So where the whole world might zig, the person of the Spirit would zag. Because that's the judgment of God. And they know it because they have the Spirit. And, and the more in union with the Spirit we are, we more, the more in tune we are with God, and the more our life incarnates and speaks forth the, the presence and will of God, the kingdom of God, rather than our own will and our own agenda. Amen. So really, to be a part of the kingdom and to be real church is to be people of the Spirit, to cultivate Spirit life. The Spirit of God was the one great factor of the early church. Part, you know, the, the, the other side of the two-sided coin, where the Christ event was the one thing. The other side of the coin was the outpouring of the Spirit. Together, they're one coin. That was everything. It was the whole fulfillment of the law. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. I mean, think of these powerful words to be actual character. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Even a Jew, a true Jew, is not one outwardly but inwardly. And his praise comes not from men but from God. It's union with the Spirit that was the fulfillment of everything that was writ large in Scripture. Praise God. To be people of the Spirit is the will of God, and that is what manifests the kingdom. May the Lord help us to be people of the Spirit. May we pray and live in the Holy Spirit and embrace His values and His personality, both in the discernment of our spirit and in the habits of our lives and in the words of our mouths. Praise God. This is core to what it means to be living under the rule of God. So again, let's not talk about how we're going to formulate things. Let's talk about the real substance and work out from there. To be in the kingdom is to be people of the Spirit. Because the king is named Christ. And that means anointed. He's anointed with the breath, with the oil of the Father, so that he can be the, the son as the king that he was called to be. Same with us. And, and in the Spirit, we become judges of all things. That's pretty good. Right? 
The Corinthians didn't even know how to judge their own petty problems, let alone deeper spiritual issues. So they went to the judges of their culture and of their city. And they didn't even realize, like Paul asked them, is there not one person there wise enough to judge among his brothers? Like you have the wisdom, you contain it. If you'd only relate to the spirit in humility, which is what they were unwilling to do, unwilling to embrace the cross that they might experience the spirit. Come on. It's not just going to a conference or getting loud in worship. It's a matter of embracing the cross so that we can find the alternative power to what the earth offers. And that is the the presence of God called the spirit. Well, praise God. Let's move on in your notes if you have them to number eight. Is that right? This call to follow Jesus when he called disciples. There we recognize another component of the kingdom. This call to the the brothers um, Simon and Andrew and James and John. This call to follow Jesus when he says follow me is a revelation of the kingdom as, letter A, radical Final surrender to Jesus. Jesus called these young men to something beyond a commitment. Though I think the word commitment is a fine word to use, I do think it's also limited. He called them to something beyond commitment. Rather, it is an abandonment. Commitments can be measured. Abandonment is worship. It's heart and soul. It's, it's a kind of relationship only Jesus is worthy to have from us because he alone is, is God in the flesh. It's an abandonment, this call to follow Jesus. It's an abandonment to him, to his love, to his ways, to his direction, to his lifestyle, to his assignments. It's a relinquishing of our own rights to ourselves which is a revolution in a postmodern culture which makes everything me-centered, even more so than it did some you know, decades or centuries ago. But we've gone beyond modern, which was man-centered. We've gone to postmodern, which is really man-centered. I don't know how else to put it. Our morals are now predicated in our culture upon what feels good to me and how can I express myself. And even though that's a healthy thing to do, it's only a healthy thing to do once we're in the relationship with this someone else named Jesus. Then the who we are flows naturally and wonderfully from that. But our universe, in terms of the call to follow Jesus, is centered on him, not ourselves. It's a a call to, to worship and to follow someone in something far bigger than us and beyond us. It's not about what makes us happy. It's about what makes him happy. Well, doesn't that then that makes us more happy than we could have been without making him happy. It does ultimately make us happy, but we have to believe that ultimate happiness does not come from serving our own agenda, but his. That's that's some kingdom preaching right there. When C.S. Lewis was doing his commentary on the on the Psalms, he made the point that um, to uh, our sin is not that we seek to be pleased. Our sin is that we're too easily pleased. In other words, the highest pleasure is found in fulfilling God's pleasure rather than our own. And in fulfilling his pleasure, we find what the scripture calls joy, inexpressible, 
full of glory. Praise God. Abiding in him, right? Jesus said your joy will be full in your presence. And look at the centrality. The, the emphasis is first there. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forever. So not our will, but his be done. Let her be. The, the, what, what follows from this is this word culture. When Jesus said, follow me, when he says, centralize your life, your universe around me, that then turns into an entire way of life. This follow me means more than just tag along and do what I say. Though certainly obedience is a part of the requirement. What, what, what Jesus is talking about is follow me. The way I live, embrace into your lifestyle. Follow me means more than just obey what I say. It means detect and discover the way I live. And you live that way as your way of life. The church should be a distinct culture, a distinct way of life. We have heavenly values and heavenly power to live them out. There's a way that we live. And, and that is a, a, it's a way of defining culture. And to be a culture is the kingdom. To live under God's rule is to live the heavenly way of life. How much did Jesus speak of the kingdom in Matthew? And he lays out the charter of the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. And that was just to get things going. Talk about a way of life. He wasn't just telling them what to do. He's saying this is the way the blessed ones live. This is those that, that are happy in me. They, they bear the values of the Beatitudes. Then they live the ethics of the rest of the sermon naturally. It's their nature to turn the other cheek that's totally anti-world. It's their nature to pray about everything. To, to live a life of happy dependence upon God. It's a culture. And the people share that. There's the touch of, there's the touch of meekness and of love and of turning the other cheek and of being absorbed in God and His purposes and trusting His goodness, etc., etc. The, the lack of judging, uh, the, 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 not, the discernment to not throw the pearls before swine, that everything about the church is a way of life. How can this be something we merely attend? If the kingdom is not dominating us unto becoming a culture, we are not the church at all. This is what it means to be holy, to share values and ethics that are supernatural. The church was called the way, like a lot in Acts. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six verses I think I found. I have a passage here. Maybe that's in, uh, I don't know what that, why I have more than one verse in one cluster, but it would make sense if I looked it up, but I'm not going to. I could give you verses another time. So, Jesus becomes our way of life, the way he was called the way. He says, I'm the way. What God's life looks like in a practical human person, Jesus says, I'm that. I'm the way. And then the church sometimes bears that name in the book of Acts, the way. Not just because they're pointing the way to get to God, but because this is what God's way of life looks like among humans. So they were called the way. This is something we're going for. The, the, when the kingdom takes expression, it takes expression in culture. Culture means community. It means we're family and there's a way of life down deep in the stock of who we are. 
that we're living out. It means that we have mentoring-type relationships, not just going to classes. It means the older takes the younger ones in and teaches them the ways of the Lord. Isn't that awesome? It's just such a beautiful picture of, uh, I think it was, um, what it's, it's uh, Priscilla and Aquila who take aside um, Apollos and teaches him more accurately the way of the Lord. It's a beautiful picture. Of course, there was a lot to do with identifying Jesus as Messiah, the fuller message beyond John the baptizer. But there's more to it than just theological correctness. It's a whole way of life. The kingdom of heaven is a way of life. And wisdom, when you read wisdom in the scriptures, wisdom identifies heaven's culture and gives you ways to live it out on the earth. So if we're going to be the real church, we have to think kingdom. And if we're thinking kingdom, kingdom of God means a way of life. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul says, imitate me as I follow Christ. Or be imitators of me as I am of Christ, right? In something similar in Philippians 4.9, which is even a more audacious way of putting it. uh, What does he say? If, If you've seen it in me, if you've heard it in me, if you've received it from me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So I'm sure you're familiar with that passage, and you've thought about it to some extent before. To me, it's a staggering thing to be able to say. He does not just tell them, now you just read your Gospels and do what Jesus did. Because Paul knew that those Philippians needed to see the culture of the gospel lived out. So as an apostle, Paul didn't just talk. He lived the thing before them day in and day out. The way he worked, the way he prayed, the way he had compassion, the way he conducted his business affairs, the way he related to people, the way he spilled himself out for them. Everything was the kingdom on the earth in the flesh of this little bow-legged apostle, if the legend is correct. One eyebrow stretching across his forehead. Hook nose, bow legs. It's a later tradition. Perhaps it's true. I like to talk about it. But the life that he lived before them, he said, do you remember the way I lived that? If you'll just copy me, the God of heaven will give you peace. Now, that's a powerful thing to say. That means I've developed, I've incarnated this way of life so much so that I can become my own reference for the gospel. You see the way I conducted myself. You do that and you'll be... You'll be uh, carrying on beautifully with God. That's what we have to emulate. He tells the, the, uh, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, specifically verse 17, he tells them, I'm sending you, Timothy, my son, my beloved son, does he say? My, I don't remember exactly how it is. But I'm sending you, Timothy, my son. He will remind you of my ways in Christ Jesus. I understand we're not all called to be apostles, but we're all called to be apostolic in this sense. We have to be able to tell. I'm not saying we have to rise up to this place of perfection. And if you don't, you can't be of any use. But I'm saying we should be growing into this value. That we want people to be able to to absorb our very lives and become more like Christ supernaturally by doing so. We, we can't just talk about it. We have to be it. 
You read 1 Corinthians 9, it's very similar. Paul sets himself up as the model of community. To me, that says that he was a, he was a culture by himself, and he created culture where he ever, wherever he planted a church. That was what he was up to. In 1 Corinthians 2, we read it last time, the same type of thing. When I came to you, brothers, is when I came, I did not come to you proclaiming the mystery of God. Uh, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the mystery or the testimony of God. But I determined, to, or I judged, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and this one crucified. That was totally over against the culture of his day. He says, this is the way I lived. I lived even if, if it was a shame to the powerful of the world. This is the way I lived. How could you have lost your bearings? This is the life that I gave you, Corinthians. These are the ways that I laid out before you. What I taught is what I lived. I was a culture unto myself, embodying Christ. I laid that out for you. You have no excuse to have lost your bearings. We have to be able to say the same things. Follow me means more than just obey me on a few major things. It means emulate my entire way of life from your spirit outwardly into your behavior. I don't see how we can do that without a real relationship with God and relationships with one another to help us along the way. And unless we, ha- unless we seize hold of this as a way of life, we do not have the kingdom. We have something else. Call it what you will. Christianity, churchianity. You could be sarcastic. You could be serious. You could call it religion. It doesn't matter. But it, it's, it's, not, it's not the living organism, family, kingdom embodied what the New Testament calls ecclesia. It's not that thing. And we, we should go for it. So kingdom's a way of life. Follow me, says Jesus. And number nine, the next section of chapter four, we identify as the Galilean ministry that speaks of Jesus' rather prolific healing ministry. This is a crucial component of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught, and he preached, and he healed. He communicated in word, and there was a, a, the, 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 the force and electricity and breath and tangible presence of the Spirit emanating from him to heal people's souls and bodies. So this Galilean ministry, uh, number nine in your notes, is a revelation of the kingdom as... Letter A, mission and ministry. This is this branch of the kingdom, right? The, the, the dual branch of the kingdom, on the one hand, is family. It's not, it, we need to be organized and structured, but that's not what it is any more than your skeleton is on the outside. Skeleton's on the inside. The kingdom is first family. And simultaneous with that, the kingdom is mission. It, it's not one or the other, it's both. The kingdom is family. The kingdom is mission. Spreading good news, imparting life, right? Advancing the kingdom. And here's that component. The, the, la- the two we discussed today are these two. The one we discussed the other day that's on recording, the judgments of God, that's the supremacy of God in, in us by the Spirit. So here you have our three components. Kingdom through judgments, family as culture, transformation or evangelism or whatever I meant by PM, practical ministry. What did I mean by that? Nighttime? Power ministry. Power ministry. Nighttime. What was I thinking? 
or mission and ministry. The kingdom of heaven must be proclaimed by its very nature. You may be Reinhard Bonnke in front of millions of people in one campaign, or you may be with one person, a happenstance, you know, a meeting of someone at the grocery store. Don't, don't think proclaimed just in public ministry. That's what locks us up from advancing the kingdom. The kingdom is down in the real-life nitty-gritty of people. That kind of evangelist is very few and far between and does not, as ironic as it may seem, does not reach enough people. It's the one-on-ones that reach the people. So that's what we mean when we say proclaim. This kingdom must be proclaimed, taught, talked about, and administered into every fabric of human beings. Their ears, their brains, their hearts, their bodies, their families, their friendships, their villages, their cities, their ethics, their atmosphere, their conversation, etc., etc. God's kingdom is not an inanimate, sterile political system. It's organic. His rule breathes life. The rule of God initiates the flow of divine vitality wherever God's majesty is administrated. I'm referring here to the, the picture in Revelation 22, 1 through 5, where, the, where that river that flows down the center of the city. Where does that river come from? It comes from the throne where the king sits. Kingdom means flow of life. And it, it, it nourishes everything in its path that will embrace it and believe. That's the kingdom. It's a river coming from the, from the throne. It must flow into others' lives. This, see, where am I going? This must be our mindset and our agenda. To be kingdom-minded is to be mindful of bringing God's restoration to other people. That's what the kingdom is about. There's the picture of the river similarly in Ezekiel 47. There's the Messiah we looked at last time in Isaiah 11. But then in the next passage we didn't read, when the lamb lays down with the lion... When a child can play with the snake, when there's no more harm on my holy mountain. Why? Because Messiah's ruling, shalom, covers the whole created order. That means the kingdom brings restoration in our letter B there. To be centered on the kingdom is to be centered on the restoration of the people around us. And a specific kind of restoration. A restoration that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God who anoints that gospel. So humanitarian efforts are are very welcome in this branch of the kingdom, but we cannot be reduced to that. I'm talking about restoration that is supernatural. Because wherever God rules, He restores what was out of order. That's why there was and is still a healing ministry. So why heal? You know, people get so pompous in their theology. Why heal bodies that are going to be discarded later? Well, because wherever God rules, he has restoration. It doesn't matter if it's temporary or permanent. If God's ruling, the sign of his rule is wholeness. It's not some cheap, flimsy, flaky thought of people just want something in the here and now. It's the sign of his rule. My, my, my. Restoration is the act of returning something to its original condition or its originally intended condition. This implies 
I would like to say that God is good. God is characterized fully and eternally as life and light. The Bible says there is no darkness in him at all. There is no death. There is no destruction. So what about all the times God brings destruction? To destroy something in the way of life is to bring life and light, not just to destroy because he's ticked off. The elimination of anything that God eliminates is ultimately for the sake of his life to bloom and blossom. That's why even at the end of the age, everything will be purified with intense heat and everything that can be burned will be burned. For what purpose? For the holy city, New Jerusalem, and the new heavens and the new earth. They can be filled and possessed by righteousness. Do we not have a taste of that now? This is the nature of God being expressed. That's why God heals, because he's good. There's no deception in him. There's no duplicity. God is love, and as such, he's the giver of life. And anyone who knows God bears witness to that knowledge by the experience of full divine life. When God rules, everything under his dominion experiences the benefits of his goodness. That's why when Jesus preached the kingdom, he cast out demons and healed. Because he'd eliminate the enemies to his goodness in life. And restore people who are supposed to be recipients of that measure of paradise that he's blessing them with. I'm not denying we live in a hostile world. I'm just talking about while in this hostile world, we are to live under the reign of Christ, the sign of which is a Hebrew word called shalom. Peace. This word shalom in the Hebrew means, it actually comes from a word, well, no, I'm mixing my notes here, forgive me. Shalom, peace, in the Old and New Testament, refers to total well-being. It refers to bodily health, to total satisfaction, and at times to national prosperity. Wherever the kingdom of heaven rules, there is shalom. In Isaiah chapter 9, we read that the government will rest on the shoulders of the a son will be born to a, a son. A child will be born for us. A son will be given and the government will rest on his shoulders and he'll be called. Um, uh, he'll be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of Shalom. And there'll be no end to the increase of his government. Or of Shalom. See, wherever his government increases, shalom increases. Wherever God's government increases, well-being in people's lives and relationships increase. So to be kingdom people, we're always thinking gospel that brings the initial shalom of salvation and then increases the way of life that brings shalom in someone, restoration. To see people healed in their bodies, their relationships, their finances, their 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 churches. When I say healed in finances, I'm not saying that God necessarily makes you rich, but he makes you whole so that you're able to give. You have some means. Even if in Philippians 4, Paul says, sometimes I had a lot, sometimes I had a little, but even when I had a little, there was a health there. Wherever God rules, there's shalom. 
This is why part of our impulse should be bringing the gospel to people to see their eyes set back in their head right. The relationships fixed. People healed from years of abuse and plunged into healthy relationships. This is why the church has to be a culture, if I might put these two together. So that it's not just having special prophetic ministry for someone who might need it, and they will need it. But so that people can just receive real love and real healthy relationships in Christ and just get whole just by being among God's people. And I believe in administering the supernatural power. I have some wonderful testimonies recently of helping someone pray through something. And the vision of God came to both of us as we were praying together. We saw the same vision in the same field. With the same object he was holding, and the Lord met him, and he was able to give something to the Lord he had not given up before. He was completely set free. His whole countenance changed from what it was days before to days after. Another one I heard of a wonderful healing recently. Well, someone was healed of a, of, of a bad sickness. The doctor says it's 50-50 whether or not you'll live. And a, and a man uh, prayed for him, and the next day he woke up completely whole from a, a, a disease that he had what was it, dengue fever? He was getting worse and worse. He said it felt like he was dying, and the doctor said 50-50. He told me the story a few days ago. He said, someone prayed for me over the phone, took authority over He says, I, I felt the worst that I did for weeks I had this thing. Doctors finally said, it's 50-50 whether you live. He said, I felt like I was dying. Someone called for him, took authority, called him on the phone, took authority over Next day, woke up, totally healed. No symptom, no disease, nothing. Praise God. Great references, Isaiah 61, since we don't have time to go there. We're going to turn a corner in a, in a moment. But that, that's the heart of God. The, 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 the gospel that is preached brings the kingdom, and the kingdom always brings shalom. When Jesus instructed his disciples to go from village to vi- village, right, in Luke 10 and Matthew 10, he said, when you go into a house, don't just go around, make a, make a home base and bring your peace there which I'm sure included a blessing of peace, but we now know what it means all the more. It's like, bring your shalom. Bring the kingdom into that house. Make a beachhead out of that house. Bring them to the Lord. Cause them to be whole, but with the burden of sin and the bondage produced in the flesh from the law off their backs. Heal grandma's goiter. Flick off the fever of the little one that's been suffering with this fever on and off for months. Reconnect them relationally, where, where supernaturally, where there's been conflict. Bring your shalom into that house. You'll have a beachhead to win that whole village. And if they don't come after that kind of shalom brought to that house, then they're not worthy. Go out to the edge, throw the dust off your feet, and say, but you, the kingdom of heaven came to you, and carry on. Because the chances are good that the hurting people of that village are going to see what you did in that house and come. Well, what did they do? Jesus said, bring your peace. That's a good missionary plan, by the way. To me, if you think kingdom, you think this way. My Lord's good news, what he did on the cross, he's alive from the dead, proven to be king, offers himself to anyone, Jew or Gentile alike, that gets backed up with power to be a sign of the kingdom so that the person is whole, bearing witness, my Lord is king. This is what kingdom mindedness is all about. So if we're thinking in terms not just of, not just of, of, 
of making an announcement, but bringing restoration to people, you are automatically on track with the kingdom. Does that jive with you? Shalom is the main result of God's rule. Praise God. Why don't you get your other notes out? We'll start unit three. It's what we're all here for. This is unit three today. I had to finish unit two. I hope I pull this one off. This is the message that gets me in trouble. You guys won't be mad at me, but people have gotten mad at me before. It's this... Sometimes I get spiritual resistance to this element of my kingdom teaching. And so I'm trusting the Lord will help me to be clear. I'd like for you to turn to John chapter 20. Any comments or questions? Thanks, Mark. I wanted you to say that a little loud. Remember, I said real loud. I'm just kidding. I didn't coach that. (laughs) What's that? (laughs) Turn to John chapter 20. We're going to turn a corner. In fact, let me ask you just to stand up and stretch a little bit, get the blood flowing, unless you happen to have a baby sleeping on you, you don't want to disturb your baby. But if you're able and you want to, just stand up and stretch. Half of you fell asleep during that last, that, that last session. I'm just kidding. No one was asleep. So take a moment. And then when you're seated, you could turn to John chapter 20 and we'll begin in verse 11. Before we read that text, you could look at your notes there. I gave you a nice little heading. This is the King's People School of Wisdom, still part of orientation. For those of you who don't realize how much you spit when you talk, just teach with a computer in front of you and look at the screen. Unbelievable. I have a good friend uh, who's a really fine, you know, inner city church planter, really cool guy, kind of a mystic spiritually. I mean that in a good way. He actually believes that when the saints interact, physical substance gets exchanged. He calls it like a plasma type substance. I don't know. God gave him a revelation or what, but. Um, this isn't like his main teaching. He's a real solid guy. But this, he believes, happens. There's actually physical, in the spirit realm, interaction between people. And um, I thought that was interesting. But one day I was, I was being taken back to the airport by some folks where I was speaking. And uh, the guy in the passenger seat up front was turned around talking with me and the person next to me in the van. And we were driving into the sunrise. And so the beams of light were coming right through the windshield. (laughs) Exactly like this, except we were not in the forest, but it was just like this. And he's turned back toward me like you're sitting where I am. And the sun is shining and exposing what's coming out of his mouth as he's talking. And it was just clouds and clouds of saliva. And I thought, this is what happens. I mean, he wasn't like yelling like I am. He was just talking. And it's just, 
So for those of you who are a little weird by this, sorry. But the sunlight was exposing what happens when we speak. And I thought back, back to my friend Tim's idea in the, in the spirit, how we share. It's like, well, if there's any parallel in the natural, then I could see that. Because when, we, when we're in contact with one another, I'm surprised by how much, you know, gets exchanged. Now, some of you might be grossed out by this. Now you're going to have to wear handkerchiefs like in the Old West. I'm sorry, I guess I had trouble dealing with that, and it feels better to have other people with me. But you know what? If the spirit being exchanged when we interact is greater than our saliva, we've got nothing to worry about. Or if you're like John G. Lake, the spirit is in your saliva. Or Jesus, I mean, he did spit on the guy and healed his eyes. That's why. His body carried spirit. That's absolutely true. It was even in his clothing. People just touch that, you know, because the, the, the presence of God was so proximate. That's why they took handkerchiefs off Paul. It wasn't just something you do if you need money, you send people a hanky to support your ministry. Because it came off Paul's person, it carried something of the spirit. And we're supposed to be spirit people. And Jude says, don't even touch the garment that's been polluted. By the flesh. So, again, I'm not starting. This isn't like the core to my kingdom theology. But there is something very real about the spirit of God in our bodies. So we're still on orientation. Unit three there, your subheading, the ascension and the church. So that's what I'm talking about for a little while here. If I, if I may, I'm going to take the full half hour to 630. I don't think I'll teach this long usually. But these last couple required it. Um, I'm going to talk about the ascension and the church. The ascension is a fairly neglected topic as far as biblical teaching in the gospel goes. And I'm, I'm going to explain to you why I believe it's neglected, um, because it has everything to do with the church as authentic community. I'll show you how I tie those things together. Some of you probably already know. It, anyway. Um, we don't talk much about the ascension. The ascension is tied to the second coming. There's not a lot of talk about the second coming. Uh, these days, popular charismatic teaching more emphasizes only the now, not the not yet. We need balance. It doesn't have to be one or the other. So without, talk, without an emphasis on the second coming, which is emphatic in the New Testament. So it should be emphatic in any kingdom people. But without an emphasis on the second coming, I believe there's also a a de-emphasis on the ascension, which implies everything to do with our daily lives, believe it or not. So I'm going to try to hit that. Our our first point, uh, or I'm going to try to explain it. Hitting it would be easy. I could just throw words out that, you know, topics. Ascension, authority, community. Get it? (laughs) I'll try to explain, try to build the, bridge those concepts. Our first point We're going to look at the ascension as intrusive calling. It's intrusive. There's something intrusive to our status quo Christian lives about the ascension. Does that that make sense? The ascension is an intrusive topic to our status quo Christian lives. 
And to make that point, hopefully I draw that point from this passage, we look to John chapter 20. Beginning in verse 11, this is the uh, resurrection of Jesus, his appearance, his, excuse me, his resurrection appearance to Mary. So Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping in verse 11, right? We're all there. We're all there. And, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Miriam. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. King James translate that, translates that, I think, touch me not, or something like that. And the new King James would say something similar, I assume. Don't touch me. But a little bit more honest rendering, keeping with the tense and all of that jazz, is what my New American and probably some of your translations captures the idea. Stop doing to me what you are already doing. He was not keeping her at a distance. She had already grabbed hold of him. And he tells her to stop. He says, stop clinging to me. Because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So Jesus was well aware of his mission, wasn't he? He came to proclaim the kingdom in the flesh. That's what he said. I came to do this. We have to keep moving on came to preach the kingdom to the different cities. He made explicit many times over that he also came to lay his life down, rather climactic, and that was the launching pad to these other dimensions of his ministry. The death of Jesus Christ was the atonement for our sins. And nothing was going to stop him from going to Jerusalem. That's why he set his face there, because it's not God's will for a prophet to die outside of Jerusalem. So the life of Jesus proclaimed the kingdom, Right? He proclaimed the kingdom. That's a K. Sorry. The death of Jesus atoned for our sins. Obviously, that's the foundation of our salvation. It's of the utmost importance. But the resurrection of Jesus is what gave us the new life. We, you know, the way Paul unpacks this for us, the death of Christ not only atones for our sins, but puts to death the old man. Death to the old man. And O-M stands for old man.
the resurrection then gives the life, uh, the, the new divine life, the new creation. New creation. What about the ascension? In this passage, Jesus was jealous enough to complete his mission that he interrupted this dear lady's worship service. Well, okay, there was a tradition that said if any human hands touch the priest after he makes his sacrifice, then it ruins the sacrifice. Something like that It was a tradition. It's not biblical. So what he was saying was that this woman was about to touch him and Jesus wanted her worship to the point where he was willing to risk our atonement for it. But then the last second he stopped her. And I'm like, okay, no. Number one, it doesn't say he was about to, she was about to touch him. It says she was clinging to him. She had already done it. Number two, there's this whole thing about being touched by human hands and ruining the atonement is you don't build anything on a tradition like that. I mean, that's that's wildness. And number three, I tend to doubt Jesus would risk all of our salvation because he's so long for this woman's worship. I tend to think that way. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking Jesus love is not such sappy sympathy that he'd give up eternal salvation for us because he so wanted devotion from this woman. Ironically, something in the reverse was happening. She had clung to him and was holding on to him. And he said, stop. I haven't yet ascended. There's something of my mission that must be accomplished that I cannot let you interrupt. So let me interrupt you. I I submit to you that she was rightfully overjoyed that she saw her master whom she thought was tragically uh, murdered, but is now alive from the dead. She was rightfully overjoyed, rightfully overcome, and rightfully dove at him to hold on to him. There was nothing wrong with what she was doing. It was all natural. But I submit to you also that Jesus had something even greater than his resurrection to accomplish. I'm not saying it was better in quality. They all belong together. What I'm saying is his resurrection was not the end. He was still going up. And her revelation of him was awesome because he was alive from the dead. But it wasn't sufficient. And I submit to you that we, have, we may have settled for a lesser revelation of our Lord than the glory that he really has. And I wonder if we're willing for Jesus himself to interrupt some of our great worship services. The way he interrupted her in the middle of her worship. She was not wrong. She was right. She was not doing something sinful. She was doing something natural out of her godly devotion. And she was not in awe of something minor. She saw the Lord Jesus alive from the dead. This was all good, but it wasn't complete. And he would not allow himself to settle for what was incomplete. And he would not allow her to settle for what was yet incomplete. I wonder if we, in some of our revival styles, would be open for the Lord to say, Stop! All you're doing is good. Your devotion is good. 
and you have a real revelation of me. I'm the Lord. But you have not aligned yourself yet with my ascension. The call to ascension is interruptive. And Jesus is willing to say, now stop. Your devotion's good, the revelation is real, but stop. You have not yet ascended. And I'm telling you, you can snort and, and, and cry out and, and cry out to God and be devoted and pray 20,000 hours a day and relate to him in his resurrection. But if you don't make the ascension with him, you and I still miss something crucial to the kingdom. Because it's the ascension that enthrones the king. So if we're going to have church, we have to have kingdom. And if we're going to have kingdom, we have to relate to him in his ascension. Now, let me just make something perfectly clear. Jesus is ascended now. We're not waiting for him to ascend. Though I do think there's times, in a sense, he rises. You know, the Lord was high and lifted up in Isaiah 6. He was high already. He was, he was exalted. But, and then, but then he rose even higher. He was high and lifted up. I just think there's times that God rises up in a generation. Perhaps that's just symbolic. It's okay. Jesus is ascended on high. If we're truly born again believers, we've ascended with him. There's not some work we have to accomplish. We're already there in the spirit positionally. But that does not mean we're necessarily living practically in accordance with that ascension. And that's what I'm talking about. Any more than you could be fully born again and still choose to sin. You can still walk around in defeat completely outside of your own identity. It's possible, even though it's not reality, it's possible. Does that make sense? So we still have to steward these mysteries. Right? So if I'm a new creation, then I have to steward that. I have to cultivate that and learn who I am and make confessions and practice and start living up to my identity. It takes time, right? So there is a practical conforming to the image of these great dimensions of Jesus' work for us. So this is what I'm identifying right now. He may have already ascended and we may be with him in heavenly places, according to Ephesians 2. But we are now called to live up to that position of ascension with him. And he just might be saying to us in the middle of our church as usual, on a resurrection level, if you would, stop clinging to me. Just because you're clinging to me and you're showing such devotion, which he, um, he does love in itself, that does not mean you're fulfilling my will for you. There's a whole other dimension to, to my ascension that requires something of you you may not be willing to fulfill. So how do we relate to his ascension? I'd, I'd like to look at Ephesians chapter 4 where his ascension is described again. Ephesians 4. As we've joked previously, things always seem to come back to Ephesians 4, at least for me. Well, you get this. I'm going to need this again. What if this thing, as I was doing that, just totally flipped up? Like hit me on the head and I fell backwards. That'd be like one of those, you know, whiteboard fail. 
boom, you know, it's out of the blue. The thing goes, the legs go underneath. Ephesians 4, let's read these verses, uh, 1 through 16. <clears throat> so, uh, Ephesians 4, 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. However, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says... When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And we have church growth conferences. The body causes itself to grow if it's in line with Ephesians 4. It's entirely supernatural and very powerful. In verse 8, okay, he's, he's talking about the unity of the faith Then he says, but there is diversity. Each person is gifted differently. And he speaks about each body member, it seems. Then he shifts gears in a minute and actually just focuses on certain people before he gets back to all the saints. Okay? To do that, he quotes a passage from the Old Testament, Psalm 68. In verse 8, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. You guys familiar with that passage, the beginning of Psalm 68? Let God arise and his enemies be scattered. The image in Psalm 68 is ascension. It's a picture of like warfare. It's it's like warfare. It's warfare in the, the ancient that's a mountain. That's not a huge fat candy corn. 
In the Old Testament imagery, what seems to be celebrated in Psalm 68 is Yahweh's ascension on Mount Zion. Against the background of warfare in the ancient east, of course, a king would lead his troops into battle, and if he, if he and his army defeated another nation, they would plunder that nation and receive gifts. In Psalm 68, it says that Yahweh ascends and he receives gifts. As Mike Harry told me before the meeting today, Paul seems to have tweaked it to giving gifts. The idea is this king who received the gifts from his defeated foes automatically will then share the plunder. If he's a benevolent king, which Yahweh and Jesus, they are a benevolent king. Receiving gifts is to give gifts because he'll share the wealth. All right, so an ancient king goes to battle. I like to use arrows. That means battle, going away. It's a fight. Battle. The kingdom of Israel wins. So the king returns with wealth. And he sends Mount Zion. Okay, I'm just going to draw the stick figure. Then... He shares the wealth with the people below. Okay. Victory of the king. He overcomes his enemies. He plunders the enemy's wealth. Takes the wealth. Receives gifts both as an honor of his victory. And it says in Psalm 68, even from the rebellious, he receives gifts. He ascends on high and he distributes his wealth to his people. Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4 that this really was talking about the ascension of Christ. When he ascended on high, he plundered his enemies. He took their wealth and he gave them to his people. To to oversimplify this, the, the, the worldview, a biblical worldview, sees that there are evil powers in the heavens. Right. There's at least like three layers or something, but there's these. There's evil powers in the air. This is a consistent theme in Ephesians. It's in chapter one. Paul prays about Christ's exaltation in view of these powers. These are the the, the dark, invisible forces that are behind evil rule on the earth. In Ephesians 6, he refers to it again. It, it's, it's implied in Ephesians 2 that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Uh, these powers are called rulers and authorities, world powers of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So they're all like this, this, some kind of demonic power hierarchy is in the heavens. Ruling the world. When Christ was raised from the dead, it was important that he physically penetrated those heavens to display the victory and to manifest it physically. Ascend, it tells us in Ephesians 1, far above them. This picture, to your shock, does not do it justice. It doesn't say he's above them. It says he's far above them. Right? Uh, uh, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Okay. Da, 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 da. Um, 
these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. To the church. Not to a group of disciples. But to the church. The church is the fullness of him who now fills all in all. So Jesus told Miriam, look, I'm glad you love me. I'm raised from the dead. But I'm not done yet. I have to rocket through all these heavens with these hostile forces and show them that they have been dethroned. And the son of David, Yahweh's king, will now take his throne on the heavenly Mount Zion. So he said, I love your worship, but it ain't this. Plus, I'm going to give you more to worship and I'm going to give you more authority. So he goes up there. What happens when a king defeats his enemies? He plunders his enemies. He takes the wealth of the evil kingdom and he gives the wealth to his people. That's the imagery used here in Ephesians 4. In verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. You know, there was a victory train with all the people that were not killed from the enemy cities and the enemy nation, whatever it was. Those that are going to be taken for slaves, sometimes in ugly ways by some of the kings of the ancient world. They were dragged along by ropes in in like a victory march as the king came back into his capital city and ascended his throne with a whole stock now of slaves and gold and silver and livestock and whatever else. So here that picture is being capitalized on. When he ascended on high, he led captive this host of captives and he gave gifts to men. It goes on to say the one who ascended is the one who descended. So we see the nature of kingdom warfare, if I might make a little comment along the way. The king goes up by going down. He doesn't win by trying to overpower the enemy in a a worldly way, but in God's way. He goes down, 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 down. Like Smith Wigglesworth said, the Lord, he's up, he's down, he's up, he's down. You don't get ascension without going down deep. The kingdom of heaven always overpowers by power under. It goes low. And then God springs it up. This is a little side comment. That's free. The rest is going to cost you. So it, it gives this parenthetic comment so we understand the nature of the kingdom. And now the one who went as far down into the earth as he could, he ascends far above all the heavens. It's again a reference to the evil power structures in the air. Remember, he's now plundered his enemies. So it says in verse 8 at the end, he gives gifts to men. Then verse 11, what are those gifts? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. The five ministries. They're the ones the enemies had captive. The five ministries were captive by enemy forces. You understand why? Because these five ministries, however they do, which we're not talking about right now, but the five ministries express the kingdom in the church. That is, they bring God's government versus man's government. 
so they're a threat to the powers of the air. So the powers of the air are going to keep them bound. But upon the ascension, Jesus did what was necessary to release the five ministries into the church so the church would be built up. Are you following me? See, the resurrection saves the soul, but the ascension saves the church. And we tend to relate to Jesus just on the resurrection level. It's just like, Lord, you're wonderful. You're alive. Yay, amen. And I'm a disciple. Let's go to conference on, on Sunday. And, and, and the Lord's saying, no, there's, there's something far greater. Somehow, it, it's like, okay, I used to talk about Steve Hill, the evangelist of the Brownsville Revival. When Jesus' resurrection applied to Steve Hill, saved his soul so that he becomes a, a forgiven living human being for the first time. But when the ascension applies to Steve Hill, he becomes an evangelist who wins many souls. He brings a, a dimension of authority that only a person who is that gift can bring. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the, these, these guys were bound up up here because the evil powers are threatened by them. Because the evil powers are threatened by a complete church. They don't like people getting saved. And they don't like disciples getting together. But they'll tolerate that more than they'll tolerate the authentic church, which is the production of the five ministries. That's their big threat. Do you understand what I'm saying? So they won't like people getting saved. They won't like people getting together at a conference. They, won't, they don't dig that. They don't like worship and all that. But it's like, but if you guys can stay that way, formulated as just conferences or institutions, that's fine with us because you might be getting people saved, but you will not overcome our ultimate influence in your generation. Until you dare to relate to the master in his ascension. And submit to the kind of leadership that creates complete church. I don't mean submit in the sense of like obey whatever they say. I'm talking about embrace their message and their ministry. Kind of like you're hearing right now. Unless, unless something like that happens, the devil will not be intimidated by who the church is. Even a church that's bold enough to speak up, it's not enough. They'll just become political. Let me, let's, let me put it in reverse. If we do not recognize the five ministries and their effect on the church, as the church, we still live under the powers of the air. And when I say recognize, I don't mean call people apostles. They... There's plenty of people called apostles nowadays that are ruling right from here. I don't care if they're called an apostle, a bishop, a priest. I care that they are. Are they the product, the gift of Jesus giving the five ministries to the church? And what do the five ministries do? They undergird the church. They don't come over them. We're now the bosses. You don't have to call me pastor. Call me apostle. That's not what an apostle does or a prophet or an evangelist, pastor, teacher. They come underneath and they say, let's build you and raise you up so that you become the thing. That's the expression of the kingdom. See, it all does. The, the mature body, you back it up in Ephesians 4, the mature body comes from the equipping of the saints. Equipping of the saints comes from the five ministries. Five ministries come from the ascend, ascended Lord. 
There is no room in there for denominational politics. That is all from here. It's all from it's all from here. The Roman influence all from here. And I don't just mean the Roman organization. I mean the whole influence even on Protestantism. This hierarchy where one's the boss and you it's like that you got that in Catholicism? You got it in our Protestantism too. You have in some of our evangelical churches. Same spirit. Politics comes from here. Kingdom comes from here. And the five ministries, they know how to breathe life into people to become the thing. That's what it says in Ephesians 4. That's why Jesus said, stop clinging to me. I haven't yet ascended. I don't just want to save some souls. I want the church to be my fullness. I'm a head. I need a body. And you don't, get, you don't get a body by just having people come to church and say, and you're the body. So you got to enter into that. So how do we relate to the ascension? We relate to Jesus by looking for the five ministries and letting genuine five ministries impact us so that we become the ones built up and become the church. Not just supporting their ministry, but they support ours. Come on now. We don't support their ministry. They support ours. Well, isn't it mutual? Yeah, it's mutual if we understand what we're saying. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a little after the hour, so I guess it's time to end. The complete church expresses the kingdom. God's way of governing the church is through his ascended Lord. There's only one king. He's not looking for local kings. There's only one king. But when you have the kind of government on the earth that comes from the ascended Lord, then the king continues to rule his people. Instead of you have a king and a head guy ruling, and then a staff or whatever. I mean, I've heard it taught outright. I know this is extreme, but it has been taught. If the Lord tells you one thing and your pastor tells you another, do what your pastor says. I mean, who's ever heard of that? But it's this whole theology. I know that's extreme. That's very extreme. And, and people in the right sense should submit to their leadership. That's biblical. But in the right sense, in the right spirit, and in the right context of the New Testament. Jesus is everyone's king. And his leaders support that, not the, their own authority, but his. Come on now. And how do they do that? By building the body. And you know what that brings in? It releases God's people and it allows a lot for a lot of risk, by the way. A lot of risk. Because then the guys aren't in control. So you can allow a lot of junk in. And you've got to live with that. You've got to fight those battles the way the New Testament does, not by controlling them politically. Because when, you, when leadership takes control to alleviate certain risks, they also alleviate the kingdom. They alleviate the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ as the ascended Lord. So to the degree we submit to a leadership, to a style that is political, to that degree, we are still ruled by the elemental powers of the air. So from here on out, when I'm teaching about the DNA and the direction we're going to try to go, trust me when I tell you I've got these things in mind. To me, this is the fear of God. Does that make sense? Where the ascension works in all of this? And these are the things that came up in our prayer meeting before this. I did contribute, and I knew what I was speaking on, but others didn't, and they were praying it. So God is speaking this. And my prayer is that 
Jesus Christ will be king of all of his people and that his leadership will support that king and that kingdom and those people rather than themselves and their own agenda. In my thinking, everything comes from this. Ephesians 4 is kingdom. It's, it's kingdom talk. There must be apostles. There must be prophets. There must be evangelists. And there must be pastors and teachers. There must be to build the church. Then they become the thing that goes out and does the work. They're, of course, their role is to equip, not to conduct. Some of you, some of you might come to me and say, okay, well, how are we going to do this? I'm going to be like, I don't know, you tell me. We're, we're doing a lot of work downloading, and we want to give you a lot of tools. There's a lot of things we're going to do when we have certain set, set up as, as leaders. But a lot of the leadership is going to be, hey, what's on your heart? What are you doing? Where's the, where's the, uh, the ascended Lord taking you on this? Let's help support that. That's where you invite a lot of risks. We've got to be careful. There can be doctrinal impurity, moral impurity. Those are, all, those are the things. It's like, how did Paul handle those things? In the spirit? Not like he never tried to pull rank on somebody. He'd say, okay, when I come to Corinth, we'll see what degree they have. We'll see where they went to school. We'll see if they have license. I'll just, I'll just tap the bylaws, baby. No, he said, we'll see what kind of power they have. He knew good and well he could have lost that church. Come on, guys. He, he, he lived with a lot of risk that way. But he said, but if, I, if that's my family, if there's any loyalty there, if God is still with me, so to speak, we'll see what kind of power those other cats have. We'll have a power struggle. I mean, supernatural power. Not this, well, you know, I got this and that, you know, this backing and this. He had no reference point to something political. You know, I was endorsed by, with, with some controversy, but endorsed by the Jerusalem leadership, the mother church. Like, where was that at? It's not there. There's one mother church. There's one king, and he has people. Come on. Lord, we pray that this would be manifest in our lives, that you give us the wisdom of it, that we would soar above the heavens by committing to your way of leading, and I'll pray this because I forgot to say it, by building community with one another, we overcome the powers of the air. Lord, give us grace to build family relationships that are wholesome in the Lord. Not weird, but not running from one another. Real relationships that bear the ascension of our Lord in their fabric. Give us grace for that, Lord, because some of us don't know how. Some of us are shy. Some of us may think this is weird. Let it be, Lord, all by your grace, we pray. And give us the courage not just to worship you at a conference in your resurrection glory, but to ascend the mountain with you through relationships with one another and by relating to your way of governing, not man's and not demons. Give us this help, we pray. Unfold this wisdom in practical ways and deepen the revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. Uh, I'm giving you your dismissal for you to get your kids and everything else. I appreciate your time and giving me extra. If there's anyone here with any kinds of needs, particularly for healing, but anything, our team, again, will come up here to pray for you and serve you. I'm, I'm going to move away from the front and go more to the side. So if you want prayer, let those guys pray for you tonight. Uh, but we really appreciate your being here. And if you know someone who wanted to be here but couldn't, just send them to the Facebook page. We should be posting this. You know, probably in a day or two. Mike, Mike's really on that, so I appreciate it. God bless you guys.